You're listening to the Sill Podcast Perspectives on Art and Technology with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 33 Fragmented Realities Has Storytelling Gone the Way of the Dodo? Singing for a living neath the brightly colored lights. And if you ever wonder why you write this carousel, hey, you did it for the stories you could tell. How's your coffee today? Do you notice how much rain we're getting today? Yeah. It's like gray skies, perfect it, coffee day for me. It is. And it's coffee that's real. It's a real cup of coffee. Hockley Valley, I tell you. At hockleyvalleycoffee.com. <laughs> oh, what a sight. Okay. Oh, what a sight. So today we're going to be talking about basically the evolution of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, we'll be alluding to the way storytelling has found its form over the centuries, over right. thousands of years. It's human nature to tell stories. It's human nature to tell stories. People say, you're a story, I'm a story. Well, we are, right? That's true. Our, our lives are stories. Yeah. On the other hand, a story is a story, as in, ah, you're giving me a story, aren't you? Mm-hmm. It's a fiction. So even when you describe your history, if I said to you, Peter, tell me your life story. Well, you would talk about your childhood, where you were born, your family. The basics. Right? The basics, the background. You talk about the first things that happened in your life. First kiss, first this, first that. Big events, mm-hmm. tragedies, celebrations. And mm-hmm. you'd say, the end. And I could say to you, what about all those 99% of the experiences you had? You didn't talk about them at all. Right. So your story is a fiction in the sense that it's so selective. Mm-hmm. That it might as well be... Not encompassing all the details that make up the real story. Might as well be a novel. Might as well Mm -hmm. be made up. So there's a book that I read recently that we're going to refer to a few times in this chat of ours called Reality Hunger. Okay. It was written a few years ago by uh, David Shields, an American writer. And it's a fascinating book. Interesting title. Yeah. And he calls it a manifesto. And the reason he does that is he's saying that the way art and writing should be presented and created moving forward Mm -hmm. is totally different than the classical standard storytelling. The classical being the standard novel that we understand or have had for the last couple of hundred years? Yeah, the novel itself as a form of literature is not that old. The beginning of the, what, 19th century? Yeah, thereabouts, maybe a tad earlier. Mm -hmm. A few hundred years at the most. We've only had a press for 600 years. That's right. A printing press, that is. Let me just read you a paragraph from this, if I may. Sure. Help orient us a little bit here. He says, In the first half of the 19th century, which remains for many a paradise lost of the novel, certain important certainties were in circulation. In particular, the confidence in a logic of things that was just and universal. All the technical elements of narrative, the systematic use of the past tense in the third person, the unconditional adoption of chronological development, linear plots, the regular trajectory of the passions, the impulse of each episode toward a conclusion, etc., tended to impose the image of a stable, coherent, continuous, unequivocal, entirely decipherable universe. And I'm going to skip ahead here. 
The world's destiny has ceased for us to be identified with the rise or fall of certain men, of certain families. The world itself is no longer our private property, hereditary and convertible into cash. 200 years later, the whole system is no more than a memory. It's to that memory, to the dead system, that some seek with all their might to keep the novel fettered. Mm. So he's saying that the world has changed fundamentally in terms of how the world is ordered, how the world is controlled, who controls things. Yes. That in the past you had rich families. The elite. The elite. The educated. That's right. And so novels reflected that yes. in the way they told their stories. Mm-hmm. But it's a different world now. It's a world of the internet. It's a world of social media. Much it's more a, level playing field. Yeah. It's a world of sampling in music. We're quoting each other. We're grabbing a little bit from here, grabbing a little bit from there. We're collaging together reality. Not to mention the technological tools that we have now that we didn't have 200 years ago, like cameras even, that only came into play. The first picture, I believe, was taken by a Frenchman in 1827. Right. Uh, And then they developed, uh, I believe, the first motion picture camera in the late 1870s. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, these are all relatively new things, and they really changed the way we communicate. And the way we could tell a story. Mm -hmm. So up until that point, you couldn't tell a story visually other than through a painting. A static image. Interestingly, though, the very first images that man ever used, or the very first way that man communicated, the origins were about 34,000 years ago in southern France, right. where they found these cave paintings, mm-hmm. and they were only images. Yes. So, in a way, we've gone back to that only on a much grander level in the sense that the sophistication of our technology allows us for much more. That's true. And a number of years ago, at least 20 years ago anyway, Moses Neimer produced a program on City TV where he basically announced that the image has triumphed over the word. Ah, was that the famous Blue Channel? Yeah, same channel that the Blue movies were. First. Right, right. This was back in the <laughs> 70s. Wasn't back in the late 70s. I watched this, and what was interesting about that program was, and this was City TV's signature thing, mm-hmm. is it would be text over top of the image image rolling across or popping up here and there. And I thought, really? The image has triumphed over text? There's text right there. There's words all over the damn screen. What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Right? But he was talking about its effect. Yes, I think he was. So there are ways of telling stories now or, or of sharing experience that don't have to rely on the traditional linear chronological novel form of the 19th century, 18th century. I read this book, Reality Hunger, and uh, it sparked all these interesting ideas and thoughts. Well, as a writer, I would think it would have affected you even more that way in terms of your own work. Well, I'm already moving away from the traditional forms as it is. My writing has become a lot more experimental in the last few years. So this kind of confirmed for me that that's perhaps a way to go. Now, you could argue that the world has changed in a way which is not positive, So the Mm. fact that we live in this chaotic world of images being thrown at us from all directions and information coming at us from everywhere at any time of day or night and Mm -hmm. not in chronological order is not necessarily a good thing for the human being. Right. I am curious, though, when you said you modified or you changed your writing style or you're taking in other elements, how much did technology have to do with that change? Well... uh, 
just in terms of being able to access a little piece of information about an obscure something mm-hmm. that I'd want to bring into the writing, I could very quickly go to Google or YouTube, pop it in there, get that bit of information right. and incorporate it in the writing and keep on going. In the old days, you'd have to go to the library. It would take a day or yeah, half just a day. The amount of time required. The amount of time required. Mm-hmm. So my thought form, which these days is really heaving forward quickly with ideas and words, doesn't have to be slowed down quite as much of course. as it used to. Yeah. And writing on a computer compared to a typewriter, yes. a lot faster. Mm-hmm. Two different experiences, just the cut and paste and the editing process. That as well, yeah. Mm-hmm. And a lot of modern communication with social media is delivered in more of an editing style. How do you mean? How do you mean? More choppy, shorter bursts, yeah. quick frame. When I'm editing something, you take a lot of information and begin to dissect it and piece it together in a way that perhaps makes sense, perhaps not, depending on what style you're trying to achieve. But you have that kind of elimination of various sections primarily for the attention span. Right. Because if you have a picture of an individual just sitting in a chair, if he's doing something, you can watch him for 10 seconds. But if he's just looking into space more than two seconds and you're going, well, how long is this going to last? And what I'm suggesting also with multimedia, because also with the size of files for bandwidth purposes and so on, we're learning to communicate in an abbreviated format. Mm-hmm. Not just LOL. The entire way we style our communications is geared to quick yeah. access, quick turnaround, quick everything. Your comment about um, attention span is really appropriate. Because think about before television, mm-hmm. say before cinema, you'd read novels. You'd read these long tomes where characters would be carefully crafted over a hundred pages. You'd get bits and pieces of them, and gradually you'd get a feel for the character and the story, da 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 da, da. So cinema comes along that tells stories in an hour, an hour and a half. <clears throat> yes. Excuse me. Uh, television comes along and tells stories in a half hour, shorter again. Mm-hmm. In between those television uh, shows, there are commercials that are 30 seconds or a minute. In a shorter period again... And then you get the development of MTV, of music videos, and the editing style, this quick cutting editing style of music videos, suggesting that we as human beings are drawn to novelty, to change, change, to newness. So if you give a human being a change every X amount of seconds, you'll keep their attention riveted. Which is their objective. Yeah. In a lot of cases, because communication has also become commercialized storytelling. You commercialize storytelling for the purpose of selling products and services. That's right. That's right. If you listen to um, Terry O'Reilly on CBC Radio, he has his program, uh, The Age of Persuasion. It was called, and now it's called, uh, Under the Influence. I listen to it. Basically, it's a fabulous program. Mm -hmm. But he talks about all of these uh, companies that have become famous because of the way they frame their product within a story. Yes. That's Citing story. examples, real yeah. people, real situations. And that's right. So you put yourself into the situation of the guy getting into the Cadillac, and you want that Cadillac. Mm-hmm. That sort of thing. And even more sophisticated ways of doing it. Highly personalized. Yeah. So storytelling has been put into the service of commerce. So even as you say, a novelist who writes a novel wants to sell the novel. 
to sell the story. Which may affect his style, much like musicians. Sometimes uh, you hear a brilliant piece of music and you listen to this particular musician or artist for a period of time and suddenly they change and they become very popular on the airwaves. And their music changes, their style changes. Yeah. Because they've kind of given in to the commercial aspect in the sense that I'm going to write what sells. Exactly. This book is really interesting because he's saying that the way forward is through a kind of collaging of experience. So the end of the linear chronological story. A to Z. A to Z is done. I would have to disagree on certain levels about what he's saying here, too. Which are? Well, for example, I sat down with uh, my friend Jim Troutman and David Chesterton yesterday at Mocha Berry at the cafe. Mm -hmm. And we'd have these coffee chats. This is our second one. We talk about all kinds of things. But because these two gentlemen are older than I am, they have interesting memories. In their 80s, aren't they? In their 80s, going back to the war, going back to Vietnam, Mm -hmm. different experiences there. And when I was listening to them tell their stories, it was a whole different thing from me picking up a novel and trying to slog through a novel because Mm -hmm. they were telling the story in person, directly. And to me, that's not boring when a person is telling their own story. Box, box. So, what's your story? I have a character in my story who is an animal. He's worse than bad. He's just terrible. Even the people he has hired, he will think nothing of killing them if it means that he gets a bit of a boost a mental boost and so on and I realised that doing a trilogy where he was always that that he never questioned his desire to hurt, to kill to do anything that swelled his ego and so I'm rewriting quite a bit of the story I mean he's still going to be the bad guy He's still going to be a nasty son of a bitch, but not with every word that comes out of his mouth. (laughs) Okay. We are here with... David Chesterton. And where are we? At Mochaberry. All right. Thanks, David. (laughs) Box, box. What this fellow David Shields is saying in his book is that there's a kind of a fiction, a deceit going on. Yes. Really, what you're reading there is the writer's story, mm-hmm. not the character's story in the book. And the interesting thing, too, when you're face to face with someone, you yourself as the listener affect the way he or she tells you the story because your level of interest, your response, your facial expressions. Right. So it can enrich it or do the opposite. Yeah. And when you read a novel... In some respects, the novel has you hostage. You can't respond with facial expressions and have the novel shift the way it tells the story. Your position is passive. You are passive. You have to take the story as given. Yeah, Yeah, go ahead. I know from a technological standpoint, I know the changes that have occurred with audio, video equipment, uh, virtual reality. There are so many, especially in the last 15, 20 years with the availability of a lot of bandwidth on the internet, which has also created a whole other slew of possibilities in terms of what people can actually put together and put out onto the internet. I'm interested from your perspective as one who 
uses technology, but has gotten to this point primarily without it in the sense of most of your work, you do use technology, but the technology is kind of embellished or it's given you another tool, but it hasn't actually affected the core of your work. How are you finding it now that the successive use of social media, the constant updating of software, of computers that are always giving you alternative ways of whatever it is that you're crafting? Well, if you're of a certain generation, younger than me, mine, you're up on the various apps and maybe you're much more aware of all the possibilities of a Facebook or a Tumblr or a Flickr, etc. Whereas I'm using the basics of those to piece together communications that let other people know how my story is unfolding, if I mm-hmm. put it that way. So you're using it more as a tool to deliver your product than you are a tool to make your product. Oh, yes. There have been books written on Twitter, for example. X number of Twitter entries have become a book. Mm-hmm. I'm not about to play in that field particularly because to me it's a constricting in its form. And I'm not that drawn to having technology being a co-creative partner per se. Mm-hmm. I really am using technology to simply get the words out there on the page or recorded yes. in a video. And then people can experience them in different forms. Yeah. I don't feel beholden to technology that I need to be a partner with it. And I think this is a routine argument or debate with a lot of people and why they sometimes look down on technology because the older crowd feels this loss or they feel that the generation after us is losing some of those fundamentals because Mm. of the abbreviated formats, because of the quickness which may or may not be valid. I'm not 100% sure yet in terms of what qualifies as valid or not, but we have to at least accept the fact that it's changing. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of technology and art, not too long ago, they had some artificial intelligence applied to the world of novels and plots, etc., And so these computers analyze thousands and thousands of books and their storylines for words, phrases, emotional arcs, and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And the artificial intelligence filtered through it all and came up with six main emotional arcs in storytelling. And here they are. Okay. Rags to riches, which is a kind of a rise. Mm -hmm. Riches to rags, which is a kind of a fall. What Kurt Vonnegut called man in a hole which is a fall, then a rise. There's the Icarus story, which is a rise. The wax wings. Then a fall. Then you have Cinderella. A rise, then a fall. On the slipper, a rise. And then you finally have Oedipus, which is a fall, then a rise, and then a blindness and a fall. So these are the six emotional arcs, and that's it. There are no others that you can squeeze in there that aren't offshoots of those In other words, all novels have one of those elements as their fundamental base. Yeah, in terms of the emotional storytelling arc. Mm -hmm. Then you have your seven basic plots. And they are? They are overcoming the monster, rags to riches, again. The quest is a main plot style. Voyage and return, comedy in general, Mm -hmm. tragedy in general, and rebirth. Those are your seven basic plots, and you can't fit anything else. Now, what this reminds me of is I was watching the Olympics the other day and watching the figure skating. Mm -hmm. I've been watching figure skating at the Olympics for 50 years. 
And I saw this guy on, doing his thing, his flips and his with, whirls. With the quads? The quads and the triple sow cows and all this stuff, throwing his arms up in these balletic ways, mm-hmm. wearing these very frilly outfits, etc. And I thought, God, this is boring. I've seen all of these moves in different forms for 50 years. Mm-hmm. I'm bored with this. The same way that I'm bored now with the standard novel form, with all of these basic plots. I want novelty now beyond these things. So novelty goes way beyond technology and age. So a lot of the times when we hear these social discussions or arguments about old fogies versus youth, thinking that the older people are past novelty, are past excitement, are past wanting newness in their life. Yeah, and from the point of view of the modern world, that's absolutely right. Hmm. We as older people are passe. But you and I both know that's not true in terms of what we like to do and what we think and what we reflect on. Yeah, but with each other. Right. You put a teenager in the room and it's a whole other story. That's true. You know, someone was lamenting the other day how their teenage cousin at their family gathering was constantly referring to their smartphone, Mm. constantly looking at it for something else and really didn't have any sense for history. Any Mm -hmm. sense for time, the flow of time. So in a sense, the loss of that classical form of storytelling from past to present, climax to future possibilities, that's fading away. And that's what we see out there in young people who are lost in time, lost in time. They don't know where they are. And it's a very strange place. Maybe don't have a reference point. That's what I mean. Yeah. They can't situate themselves. There's no anchor. Yeah. If you know what's come before and you can get a sense for what's coming ahead, you get a feel for where you are now. They may argue, though, that in their world, the anchor is not required. So you had it, but what do we need that for? We don't live in that kind of world. Right. Yeah, but no matter what world we live in, we are time beings. We are living in time. We move from where we were to where we are going. I agree with you, but I'm always curious to understand or try to see what it is that's coming from the other side. Well, in one sense, David Shields in this book, uh, Reality Hunger, addresses that. Okay. He's basically saying that what we tell as stories is mostly fiction. It's made up stuff. It's it's incorrect memory. It's stuff we want to say to make ourselves look better. Mm -hmm. So, and even in novels, a lot of the stuff that's written is written to try to pretend to be reality. This is why he calls the book "Reality Hunger." We're hungry for reality because there's not a lot of it out there. It seems. Yes. And on the other hand, stuff that's nonfiction—essays, articles in newspapers and magazines that supposedly talk about real things are often mostly fiction because they're ideologically slanted or they don't have all the facts, Mm -hmm. all that stuff. So there's this blurring between fiction and nonfiction, between reality and non-reality. And so that's where young people are at. Today, with a lot of the so-called fake news and other elements uh, where people are questioning the validity or the credibility of information. Yeah. In terms of what's true, what isn't. Yeah. And maybe that's why the live feature or this at the moment happening has drawn a certain amount of attention because it's much harder to manipulate that. Like live stream? Live stream, live performances, right. live broadcasts. Yeah. Uh, where people don't have the opportunity to manufacture or manipulate. Right. Yeah, and once upon a time, in the early days of television, everything was live. 
Mm-hmm. There was no taped mm-hmm. delay. But editing isn't necessarily false. Editing sometimes is a way of just removing excess so that you make it more interesting. You don't falsify the story. You just sort of trim it so it can fit within a certain time frame. You see, that's where I would actually argue with you on that, because mm. that's like taking, say, a little film of a face yeah. for a minute and trimming 15 seconds off that film. And what happens is a little tiny little twitch of the eyebrow gets lost. And you're saying, well, it doesn't change anything. It just makes it more interesting and engaging. But it does. It does, yeah. Because we notice that as viewers, or we notice that as listeners. If somebody Mm -hmm. clears their throat, excuse me, Mm -hmm. that tells me here's a human being. Yes. But to clear their throat. It's real. It's real. It's in the moment, right? So we clean that up. We overproduce a lot of things. Oh, yeah. You can get carried away. There's no question about it. And you discuss the eyebrow. There's an element where I totally agree that that's a critical part of the entire framing. Mm-hmm. I guess one can always argue that an edited product is never 100% real. Right. Yeah, I think you can make that argument really well. And because of the time constraints we've placed on our programming, Mm -hmm. editing is forced onto it to bring it down to a certain length. And then it's assumed that the things that are cut away are not really necessary to get the story across, Mm -hmm. which is the same thing as you telling your biography and leaving out 98% of the stuff. Because what's the point of talking about all those delicious meals you had with your family? Even though if I were at those meals, I might think, wow, this is a really interesting, fully fledged experience I'm having here. Part of that comes from the fact that we often think that things are more interesting to ourselves than they will be to other people. That's true. Yeah. All right. If I'm mm-hmm. taking a shot of my granddaughter, she's my granddaughter. Of course, it's going to be important to me. But to someone else who's not in the family or not connected to that, right. that image held for more than a few seconds is like, well, OK. Mm-hmm. Developing a story or telling a story in terms of the timelines, in terms of the restrictions imposed by either the media, by the tool that we're using to propagate the information. So, i.e., there's only so much bandwidth, the file can only be so large, and on and on it goes. But for writing, if you're a writer, you don't really have that limitation. No. And if you're writing a book for your own purposes, there are absolutely no limits. The limits only come in when you start to consider who's going to consume it. How am I going to get it out there? That's when the limitations begin. Because initially, you're not limited to anything. You could produce whatever you wanted to produce. And so as an artist, why not just stay with that? In fact, many artists do that. Yes, they do. They just produce what they want to produce. They're not thinking about the audience and making it palatable or making it pretty or whatever it is that they're expecting. Yes. They just produce it. Storytelling, regardless of the era that we live in, remains. Yeah, it's not going the way of the dodo quite yet in that form, even in the classical novel form. People are still enjoying it. People are still buying those books and gobbling them up and saying, this is brilliant, this is fabulous. I'm not one of them because I'm getting tired of the old form. But there's still lots of people out there telling stories in the old classical way, following the prescriptions of beginning, middle, and climax, and denouement, that rhythm, and creating beautiful works. And as long as there are people from our generation around, that will stick around. Now, the question will be, two generations hence, Hmm. when we're gone, will it still be the same? I don't know. Well, I think as long as we maintain as human beings our desire to connect with other human beings, Mm -hmm. some form of storytelling will always exist. Yeah, I think so. And so, what's your story? 
What's your story? What's your story? Oh, it's too long to go into. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want to know my story, Eric. The end. (laughs) And if you ever wonder why you're at this carousel, hey, you did it for the stories you could tell. Oh, The Sill Podcast, Perspectives on Art and Technology, is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com. Thank you.